Welcome to Professional Planner's new Ethics and Professionalism podcast series. I'm Matthew Smith, and I'm Head of Retail Content at Conexus and editor of Professional Planner magazine. In this new series, we will engage an ethics expert and a practitioner to talk through real-life ethical scenarios advisors encounter in their everyday professional lives. How individuals act or react when faced with an ethical dilemma will come down to a culmination of factors, including their backgrounds, experiences, education, situational and environmental factors. We've asked advisors, you guys out there, to submit real-life ethical scenarios you may have faced, both client-facing and dilemmas relating to employment structures or situations, with the intention of unpacking these in light of FASIA's new Code of Ethics. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Alan Gray, the Contrarian Investment Manager. Less following the pack, more conviction. That's the Alan Gray difference. Go to alangray.com.au to find out more. We're joined this afternoon by Dr. Michelle Cull and Richard Jackson. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good to have you both here. Uh, I'll, I'll read some quick bios. Dr. Michelle Cull is the Associate Dean Engagement at Western Sydney University's School of Business and a Senior Lecturer Accounting. Michelle devoted her PhD to the role of trust in financial planning and has published a range of academic papers in financial, financial literacy, financial planning and financial planning education, in addition to textbook chapters for financial planning. Michelle supervises a number of PhD students and teaches in face-to-face, blended and fully online models across undergraduate and postgraduate programs in accounting, business and financial planning. She is a leading academic in the area of financial planning with her research cited in the media. Richard Jackson entered financial planning in 1999 and became a financial planner when he established his practice in 2001, um, Richard Jackson and Associates. Um, Based in Sydney CBD, Richard entered financial planning following completion of a Bachelor of Economics at Sydney University. He worked for Westpac, where his experience included two years in capital markets and three years in London. Richard was subsequently joint CEO of a furniture manufacturing company. In 2013, Richard became an authorised representative of Paragem. In addition to his Bachelor of Economics, Richard holds a diploma of, of financial planning, is a registered tax financial advisor and is a graduate of the Finzia ASX accredited uh, listed product advisor course. Um, first to you, Michelle, um, I, I noticed in your bio there um, your PhD is on the role of trust in financial planning. Um, will the new code of ethics bring trust back to financial planning? Well, I'd like to be positive and say, yes, it will, but I think it will take some time. I know in speaking to clients and um, potential clients as part of my PhD studies, there was a strong emphasis on having to have ethical people as financial planners and that they wouldn't trust anybody who wasn't ethical. So that tends to make a bit of sense. I'm sure most of us wouldn't want to trust someone um, who was unethical, although we could trust that they were unethical. (laughs) So um, I think... We have got a long way to go, but this is a good start uh, towards developing that trust and building it um, yeah. with our clients. So I presume you've cast your eye over the Code of Ethics uh, at least and probably done a lot more than that. Anything stand out to you um, based on the study you've done previously and now in light of the Code of Ethics that you think is, is interesting in the Code or perhaps 
might be a sticking point for some advisors or the industry in its progress towards professionalism? So I think what's really interesting is that uh, for financial planning, it's actually taken legislation to create a common code of ethics for all financial planners, whereas with a lot of other professions, the professions have, have mandated mm. the code of ethics. Mm. And we have had that in financial planning. Uh, so with the FPA, for example, they had their own code of ethics, but that only... Um, applied to members of the FPA and we've got a lot of other professional bodies mm. in financial planning. So I suppose um, when we're looking at, when we study ethics, we look at um, people following the law at being at one stage of their moral reasoning and the ethics sits above the law, whereas mm. in this case the code of ethics is mm. the law, so it is a little bit different to what we have seen with other professions. So in a way the existence of the code of ethics is a little bit of a contradiction into its purpose because it is the law, yeah. Mm. That's right. I, I think one thing I'd say about that is that part of the idea of the code is that ethics should be about principles rather than rules. And, and I think one of the things that the industry's used to when it comes to compliance is thinking in terms of checklists. Yeah. It wants to turn everything into a process. So the, the safe harbour at the moment now very much falls into that category. Mm. And I, and I think it's going to be um, an interesting process for the industry to get used to the idea that that's not really good enough anymore mm. and that you need to think at that higher level. Uh, I think many people and, and many compliance departments will find it a challenge to move away from a checklist-based approach to things. Yeah. I totally agree, Richard, because it isn't black and white. That's one thing, although the code of ethics is the law, this code of ethics is principle-based. Mm. So we're seeing the same principles as you would see in other codes of ethics for other professional bodies. So it is a grey area and hence why we're discussing some scenarios today as yeah. well. Have you, just in your business, your own business practice, I mean, because the code of ethics came into effect essentially from January 1, have you, have you felt yourself change the way you, you approach clients or your business structures in any way or, uh, yeah, have you applied? In, in many respects, not really, yeah. in that as it happens in my practices, in, in what I've been doing, I've been kind of well ahead of things anyway. Yeah. Um, so I haven't felt a lot of pressure for change from that point of view. One issue that's, that's come up from the code for me is... is um, the fee basis because yeah. I still charge on, on funds under advice yeah. and I'm still working through what I should do about that and, yeah. and to what degree that's a problem. There, there is a tendency in the industry to and in the media really to, to, to think that if we take charging on fee, you know, fees on funds under advice out of the, the yeah. toolkit then that of itself is going to improve the ethical behaviour of the industry and remove conflicts of interest. I'm not sure that that's the case at all. So mm. I'm, 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 I'm not really struggling with it from a practical point of view mm. because I think a lot of planners look at that and go, well, if I can't charge on FUM anymore, I'll just work out another formula, mm. that'll, you know, another way of charging that'll give me the same revenue but isn't, isn't FUM-based and that'll be that. Mm. Um, to, and they might actually change their behaviour or necessarily remove any conflicts that they might have to deal with. Yeah, and to, to that point, Michelle, Richard just made, where does the, the ethical 
um, issue kind of lies. It's not with the structures or how people charge. Surely it's with the individual. Well, it can affect how people make decisions if there is a financial incentive, and we've seen that happen on many occasions and it's been in the media. But I think where the real change occurs is where you do have uh, the culture changing and the behaviour is going to happen over time. The behaviour will change based on these, if we keep coming back to these values. So when advisors are faced with a situation where they need to make a decision, they can go back to the Code of Ethics and that can help guide them as to what might be the best decision, Mm. whereas in the past we didn't have that. Yeah. So um, that may help. And I think yeah. the fact that it has been legislated will, um, in a way, force people to really, rather than just sign a, a code of ethics and say, yes, I'll, I agree to follow it, they actually have to. So I think that we will say, see a bit of a change for, for some advisors. Um, and I'm not saying that advisors all needed to have this because I know many advisors are very ethical and my research told me the same thing. But I think in terms of the public perception as well, this can really help because it's uh, a publicly available document. Yeah. I think one thing about public um, public opinion about financial planning that's interesting is that sometimes I think it's a bit like politicians. You know, politicians as a class, everybody thinks are terrible people. But where people know an individual politician, they tend to think, actually, you know, that guy's not too bad. He does a lot of good for the community. And I think financial planners are a bit like that. The media now has created this sort of bogeyman almost. But for a lot of clients, they have a really high regard for their planner. So Mm. I'm not sure the code of ethics of itself is going to impact trust in that way because it's the code of ethics is more around individual relationships I think, if anything, the fact that the um, the banks are going to get out of the industry, that it will be less corporate in yeah. a sense, yeah. might in the longer term have uh, a greater impact. Time will tell on that one. Mm. When it, you, through your research, Michelle, I presume you've um, looked at individuals' behaviours and what makes an ethical person or ethical decision-making um, can you maybe talk a little bit about um, some of that research and perhaps how um, has, has FASIA or the Code of Ethics kind of picked up on any of those, um, uh, you know, behavioural um, uh, process? Okay, so uh, if I go back to some of the studies that have been done in the past, we had a child psychologist by the name of Kohlberg who actually uh, came up with a theory of moral development and how people uh, make their decisions. And as part of that, there's six stages that are at three different levels. So the first level is more for um, like a young person, a child, and it's, you know, do this or unless, you know, if you don't do this, there'll be, you'll be harmed or <laughs> something, something bad might happen to you that's um, just very more black and white. And um, then, of course, we go into, so that's what we call pre-conventional thinking. And um, then we move into conventional thinking, which involves um, the impact of culture, but also following the law. So we would most people would think if someone follows the law that they are an ethical person. But then, and that's called conventional thinking. And then we have the post-conventional thinking, which is where the ethics really comes into it, where ethics sits above the law, because the law can change. You could travel to a different country, and the law will be different, but your your morals will still be the same. Mm. But, of course, culture can impact on on how you might reason those mm. things out. Uh, the other thing is 
uh, these stages are looked to be sequential. So you don't, you can't go backwards. You can only move up um, in terms of your thinking. So mm. age has um, been shown to improve the ethical reasoning ability of individuals, um, as has education. Mm. So I think where we've got a lot of people saying, oh, well, why do we have to do all this extra education? It's not going to make me more ethical. When we look at studies over 50 years across different professions, that constantly shows there's data there that shows that, um, you know, most people are more ethical with the more education mm. that they have. Because, you know, you could look at the four stages when you've got, first of all, you have to be aware that there's a moral issue. So I think that's really where the education comes in because if you're not aware there's a moral issue, if you're completely ignorant, how mm. are you going to even consider then what might be the right decision? So I think that's sort of where that has really impacted. Mm. And in financial planning, I actually had this study as part of a survey that I did with financial planners and I found the same result. So uh, those who had the highest... Um, moral development score, if we call it that, they had um, higher, a bachelor's degree or higher, and they held a CFP. And that was what I found in my small sample. Uh, but I did find that they, they scored a lot higher than those who um, had lower levels of qualifications mm. and didn't have a professional qualification. Mm. But I, also, when you look at the CFP, it included an ethics module. So that may also have impacted on those results, but it does show that education is related. So I think in terms of uh, the, what's been happening in that area, I can see why uh, it, it's all pointing towards being more ethical, mm. by having that extra education. You've probably got listeners, though, because on, on the one hand you said um, age does, yeah. um, you know, develop more ethics and but, but also education. So some people with, um, you know, a long legacy in the industry and a lot of experience probably saying, well, why do I have to do more education? Um, you know, if you do more education and you've got a long legacy, you're, you know, you're a double threat, you know, yeah. a triple threat yeah. maybe in a way. <laughs> and, and also it doesn't apply to all people. There's always the exception to the rule, you mm. know, that, that's the other thing. Yeah. But uh, and, and I, can, I can see the perspective there as well. But I think to have changed, you know, they've, they've had to, it's been happening gradually for years, but mm. that um, decision to actually legislate that there's an educational requirement, uh, it was a long time coming. I mean, most other professions are required to have, mm. um, you know, some sort of level of education. But, yeah, I, I can see that people who are in the industry and have been for a long time, it is difficult, mm. definitely. And, um, you know, but... It's not really a solution to to that problem. There were a lot of options available, but yeah. you know, only one could be chosen. I, I think your point about awareness of the moral dimension to things is it being as kind of almost being a prerequisite to developing that higher awareness of, of ethical things. I think there's still plenty of people in the industry that haven't quite gotten onto that boat yet. That they're not really aware that they should be mm. looking at it from the client's perspective that they're still in their head in a lot of ways. They see themselves having a type of sales role then, and their job when they're working for an organisation is to sell the, the, the business model of the organisation they're working for. And I think the code might help those people to understand that actually that, that way of looking at the world is falling away and we're, you know, moving forward. But they need to... 
the FBA, the industry, FASIA need to keep on pushing along with that. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's definitely the first stage is the awareness. But then education can also help people, uh, I suppose, learn different ways of dealing with ethical dilemmas and how do you make the right decision and what process do you take. So by being able to practice that in a safe environment before <laughs> you're actually faced I think with a real dilemma can be very beneficial and, and open up one's mind as to the different options that are available, that there's not just one answer. Mm. It's not just the, a, a rule. A safe environment's a nice, a nice uh, <laughs> idea. <laughs> I think there'd be plenty of people out there that would feel that they might struggle to be able to practice in a safe environment. They think their job is to, is to advocate a certain you know, business model and they might not have the confidence they need to actually have a discussion with, with their licensee. You know, they don't feel safe about doing that. Mm. The code applies to planners. And I think one thing that would help a lot in the industry is for there to be more onus on the other participants in the industry to also structure themselves in a way that, that is consistent with the code. Mm. Because it's leaving people vulnerable, you know, to that conflict yeah. between the, the corporate agenda and the code agenda. Yeah, it's it's come up a lot in the in this series that in the, in our discussions that the code of ethics is indeed, um, you know, really focused on the behaviour of the advisors, and in theory, that means that you know all the other um, you know participants in the in the value chain, if we're to describe it that way, you know, from an industry perspective, should fall into line if the if the advisor who's closest to the client is making is has that ethical resilience or the ability to make those ethical decisions but to your point richard yeah i mean that's a lot of it's, it's quite a lot of pressure right yeah um you know i mean it's one thing for the advisor to go back and say actually this product just doesn't work i can't sell it you yeah. know yeah. um but should, they they should, the product developers shouldn't have that product development in the first place, right? No. Exactly, yeah. So I'm fortunate in that I'm in an open architecture sort of place, so yeah. I don't have any obligation to do anything yeah. and I'm self-employed. So if I make a decision um, based on client interest, which hurts me um, financially, hmm. that's that's a great way to operate. Hmm. It'd be interesting to see whether that doesn't impact the shape of the industry in the future. Because there is a little bit of a tension there, I think, between corporate agenda and for the code and mm. client interest. Mm. You know, if you take a really demanding view of ethical and moral behaviour, mm. it's not always going to be commercially attractive. From I your agree. view, yeah, yeah. I mean, Michelle, is, you know, you're nodding in agreement. Can um, the corporate machine still exist in a post-ethics World. Well, this this is the question. I mean, it's not just financial planning. You have other professionals working in similar environments for big corporations where there's pressure on them to, to sell certain products or to perform in a certain way. But um, each individual has to make their own choice. And I think we have in the standard uh, does mention that even if it's to your own personal detriment. Yeah. I wanted to, before we go into the scenarios, I just wanted to pick you up on one thing because you mentioned... I'm not sure if it really applies, but you mentioned um, to, to the financial planning profession, but you mentioned that people could be, um, you know, if they're holding themselves to a higher ethical standard, they could actually be in contravention of, of a law, you know, and breaking a law and still be in line with their own ethical standards. Is there any way that that could maybe apply in the financial planning industry? I, 
thought that was quite an interesting point. There probably is, (laughs) but I don't have an example (laughs) to go off right now. Yeah. Uh, But, I mean, it goes right back to, and I'm not sure if I should mention it, but even going back to ancient times and with the the laws that existed then Mm. and... um, I mean, even most people know about biblical stories where Jesus wasn't um, supposed to be healing on the Sabbath because that was, you know, the Sabbath was meant for rest and he healed a girl. Uh, so, you know, it goes right back to then. Yeah. He broke the law. Did he do the right thing? And mm. um, what standard do you measure that by? Was it his his own personal standard versus the law? Yeah. Um, if there was a code of ethics, what would the code of ethics say yeah. in that sort of situation? How would it apply? So, um, sorry, that's just an example I could quickly think of. But in no, terms of one, yeah. financial planning, I'm sure that there are other yeah. examples that may apply too. I mean, what might even apply more is is perhaps, um, you know, breaking convention within a workplace. You know, that's mm-hmm. a law in, it, in a way in itself, right? I mean, um, you know, if, you, if you're to try to be ethical or hold yourself to that high standard, I presume a lot of advisors, particularly in... You know, corporate structures or delivery models would have been uh, in a situation where they were breaking convention within that within that business structure. Mm. Um, so, if you have those, um, you know, examples of those scenarios, send them in, and yeah, uh, have to start looking at that. Looking, uh, you know, <laughs> um, definitely open to discuss it. We're going to move on to the ethical scenarios now. Firstly, thanks to listeners and readers of Professional Planner for submitting scenarios that we've used for this series. If you'd like to submit your own ethical scenario to be in the next series, please do so through the Professional Planner website or email me directly. You can also earn CPD points from this episode. All you have to do is follow the link from the Professional Planner homepage or visit professionalplanner.com.au slash education and answer the questions. Less following the pack, more conviction. That's the Alan Gray difference. Alan Gray take a contrarian investment approach, apply it consistently and invest for the long term. After all, you can't invest the same way as everyone else and expect a different result. Find out more at alangray.com.au. The first scenario is called Cozy Accountant Planner Relationship. My scenario involves a client with a straightforward personal and family circumstances with no estate planning concerns who has an SMSF in pension mode who holds all of its investments through an IDPS. Um, The SMSF has, say, a million dollars in assets. The SMSF was established on the advice of the client's accountant. The accountant referred the client to the planner for advice on the investments. There is no commercial link between the planner and the accountant, nor are the referral fees paid. The IDPS service also offers a super slash pension um, version, which can hold all of the client's investments and could achieve all of the client's objectives, but would only cost $250 per annum um, more than the... uh, So would only cost $250 per annum more than the IDPS. The $250 per annum super pension service cost for illustrative purposes is $2,000 less than the SMSF cost. Okay, the, the potentially unethical contact, um, co- conduct is the planner does not discuss the super pension version of the IDPS with the client as the planner is concerned that the closure of the SMSF would lead to cessation of referrals from the accountant to the planner. Uh, it is fair to note that the accountant may be well aware of the super pension of the super slash pension of the IDPS yet does not mention it 
and may even refer to um, that planner specifically because that planner uh, does not raise it as an option with the clients. So what are the ethical boundaries here? It's, it's kind of, a, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, description in there, but but really, well, I mean, first to Richard, do you want to just kind of sum that up, sum that up a little bit if, uh, if you could and then um, and maybe your thoughts? Well, I think planners have a, a positive obligation now to, to assess all the options that mm. are available to solve a problem. Mm. And when it comes to uh, what type of arrangement you have, you know, for, for, for super, for a pension in this case, you know, you can have it through an industry fund, you can have it through a super fund, you can have it through a wrap or, or, or something else. And I think planners have to get used to the idea that they should at least have a conversation with the client about all of those options. You really are obliged to do that. And when it's as clear cut as this type of thing where the, really the, 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 the client's already halfway there and, and it'd be quite, quite straightforward for them to go that next step and actually use the, the pension mode of the, the wrap, I think that the, the, the planner does have an obligation to to talk about that, to raise that as an issue. And I think that that's a positive ethical thing that, they, you know, they're required to do. I think that does, that does cross a line. Mm. And, and I think they're holding back from doing that because of the commercial impact. Relationship. Mm. So they're afraid if, if, they, if they do kind of mention these things, they, they will go, they'll, they'll stop getting the referrals, the lucrative referrals from, that, the, from the accountant. Th- that's right, yeah. And... Um, I think that, you know, this type of, of model is quite common out there as well. Yeah. It's not, not an isolated sort of event. So the, the short answer is they need to be, the, the client needs to be across all the, all the different examples. Yeah. All the different options. And, yeah. 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 Um, Michelle? I, I totally agree. I think um, there's two ways we can look at it. So from a theoretical perspective... Uh, I would, if you went with one of the higher stages of moral reasoning, the deontological perspective. So you could take the view, um, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, at the end of the day, if that was your mother or your grandmother, Mm. how would you want them to be treated? Or if it were in fact yourself, how would you um, expect to be treated? But also if we go to the code of ethics and we look at the values uh, with the, the code of ethics, we're talking about being trustworthy and being honest. And I think to be able to uphold those values, you would have to be upfront and and make the client aware of this other option. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, it comes back to that transparency and being fair and allowing the client in on all of the information that's available because this is something that's um, fairly straightforward to explain to a client as well. It's not something that I would think that they would find difficult understanding. One of the themes in the code is that you have to um, look at the client's broader picture and longer-term interests. And it also says quite explicitly that you can't really just settle with what the client um, briefs you on, right? So say the accountant refers a person in this context, they walk into the planner's office and say, well, the accountant has set up this SMSF and he sent me here to get investment advice. You can't just say, okay, then we'll do the investment advice job. The code requires that you actually go through that bigger, longer-term picture. And I think this is a good example of where the code can have a kind of coaching role mm. that does lead people to, to more ethical behaviour. Mm. Uh, mm. It'll achieve that principal's goal by having a black letter <laughs> rule. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, great. Um, okay, on to the second one, the opt-in um, scenario. A colleague has submitted terms to sell her business to a corporation under a buyback arrangement and she says that her licensee advised her to start transitioning all of her clients from, from which she receives a fee for their investment funds um, from a two-year opt-in, an FDS, uh, only for grandfather clients to a one-year. Um, now, the, the implication here is that she's built this client base over many, many years and that uh, she'll be exiting this year. Um, does it seem fair um, for her to um, be transitioning these clients all under these new one-year arrangements, uh, given that she's built this business over many years? Um, and, and what are the ethical, I suppose, um, considerations uh, in this you know, in this deal, given the, the changing environment? Uh, Richard, can you weigh into that one? This sort of scenario is, is common out there and, it, you know, it can be very difficult for a lot of people. Uh, sympathy for people in that situation. But, um, and, and of course, we haven't got one year legislated yet, so it's still almost an elective thing to do it. Mm. I, I, I think the, the, um, the fact that it might be hard on her, okay, I understand that, but I'm not sure that the code really allows you to kind of to put that on the scales. The code just stands by itself and, 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 and makes these requirements mm. and we're obliged to, to follow them. So it might, in a sense, be unfair. Uh, I guess there is one element in there that, that comes through here and that you've got a positive obligation to follow the law too. So, you know, and and... Arguably, following the law includes if she signed a contract with her dealer that she's going to follow what the dealer says, that she's got a legal obligation to follow that as well. So she's kind of caught there. Mm -hmm. um, and while in, in sort of life sense, that's, that's unfair for her, mm. I'm not sure that, you know, ethically the code lets her off the hook. Yeah, and it seems bowler arrangements appear to be, you know, deals that were, you know, of a... Of a different industry, in, in some ways, they seem to be arrangements that were created by you know institutions during you know this kind of um, you know acquisition phase of advice practices that surely and and I and you know one of the interesting parts of the Hain report was was um, you know calling out those bowl arrangements and he seemed quite exacerbated with the fact that you know advisors and can be trading you know client bases, you know, and, and recurring income and recurring revenue. He was, uh, he seemed quite uh, perplexed by that. Um, Michelle, do you have some thoughts on this one? Well, I do support what Richard has said there. Um, I think it is, it's a very difficult one and particularly if this colleague has spent some time building up the business. Uh, but if we look at the code, it does also say that it, you're still expected to be um, making the decision that's in the best interest of the client. It does say even if it is to your personal detriment, which mm. seems terrible, but that, that is the way that the, the code has um, been drafted and there are good reasons for that. I think um, we did mention briefly before about the licensees having to uh, actually have have the same code to follow. So it would be interesting to maybe see if, um, from the other point of view, you know, how ethical 
the um, the licensee feels about forcing mm. her to do this. So it works both ways. Let me um, ask you to extrapolate on that. Then, if a licensee was to be acting somehow ethically, if you know the advisor is you know their their client in a way, um, what what could they do to? to support the advisor in this scenario? Well, could they maybe um, talk about some other compensation or, mm. and, you know, in that sort of way? Mm. Uh, it, it would depend on how the agreement has been drafted and, and what was available there. I'm not a legal expert, so... But it's kind of back <laughs> to your point earlier, Richard, isn't it? I mean, if, if advisors are, you know, being asked to, to act without their personal interest involved, then perhaps some of the corporations maybe should be... Yeah. Uh, I, I don't want to sound strident in, uh, no. in saying these things, but... Look, I, I, I know where you're going, and, and I think Boller is a, a hangover from a time when the industry was much more a sales type of thing, and it's it's max of that mentality, and the whole um, approach in, in Boller is getting revenue. It's a multiple of revenue, and so that incentivized people to sign up as many clients as as they wanted. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things in the code is that, that fees have to be fair. Mm. Boy, that's going to be an interesting one in the long term. What's a fair fee? Mm. Um, you know, it comes into this, this equation as well because people that have been paying, um, you know, I, I, I'm dealing with a client now that bought some managed funds 20 years ago they were what they used to call no entry fee ones in those days. So the ongoing amount paid to the advisor is particularly high. They've paid out this this amount of money, and it's quite a lot of money over for a long period of time, and had no follow up advice. So I guess my point is, well, it, now that the code's there, if that's not fair, is it really legit for somebody to be paid under a bollar arrangement for that type of revenue? Yeah. Do, do the the reparations or the um, remediation packages that some of these advisors are getting play into what you're talking about there at all or the fact that some of these clients that didn't receive advice and if they were in an in, institution at the time are, are actually getting some payments um, back under it, the, the billion-dollar... That may be right, if I understand it, but that, that's more like in a situation where it was an ongoing advice fee and no no ongoing advice was provided. Yeah. Bollar arrangements can also capture the grandfathered fee where there was no um, no undertaking to provide ongoing advice, yet that revenue has yeah. been received by the planner. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So there's no reparations for that, yeah. for that second case. Yeah. Mm. Um, anything else on that? Do you no, want to move to I, the last one? I think we might move to the yeah. next one. It's a really interesting <laughs> one, though. It's a good one. Yeah. Um, and finally, uh, the, the final one, um, platform pledges. Platforms consistently require pledges from uh, of support from advisors and licensees before they will agree to put new funds on their platforms. I believe believe this is contrary to best interest and ask to ask for a pledge uh, to use a fund before even seeing a client, and in my view, it is against the spirit of FOFA. Um, it is, I believe, a holdover from the old days. An exception can be argued where a new fund is being put into a managed account and therefore a known amount um, will be allocated through that process. What ethical considerations does this um, pledges um, issue require um, uh, consideration of, um, Richard? Yeah, well... 
I've been in this situation, so where I've been asked to, to give an indication of how much fun might might occur through a particular yeah. uh, fund before to be put onto a platform. Um, but I didn't ever feel that I was held to that um, indication. Yeah? I, I never had any sense that there was any consequence or, or even um, review of how much actually ended up going there. I've certainly haven't reviewed whether the amount that ended up on the platform was consistent with the pledge and it's never been raised. So it was, it's more of a kind of a best endeavours thing and I've certainly never had it in my mind, never been aware of that as I've looked at what might be suitable for individual clients. And that particular fund is not one that I've used universally or anything like that. I use it for particular types of situations and it's only the clients who are in that situation that I use it for. So I didn't really see it as something where I had made a commitment yeah, so um, the, the, that um, suggestion of a pledge didn't change your behaviour, um, even subliminally? You, maybe you don't know. <laughs> look, I, I, look, I'm open to the idea that it might have a bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. because, you know... Could just, have ch- changed it the other way. Look, it's really hard to know with these types <laughs> of scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'd like to think not, but yeah. it, it, it may have. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard to judge your own behaviour in this type of environment. Not putting you on the spot, Richard, but uh, no, that's... Uh, but I, I've actually not really heard of these um, pledges before, so quite interesting um, for me as well to, to hear about that. Um, Michelle, any thoughts on this one? Well, it's probably not ideal, um, but there could be many reasons why you might... There are a number of reasons as to why um, an advisor may pledge support. There are a number of reasons why an advisor might want to pledge support, but I think uh, as long as it's not affecting the decision that they make, you do, it is a very fine line there. But if you're looking at what's maybe in your client's best interest, and, uh, and I'm not sure here, Richard, you might be able to clarify, but if there was something that you could see um, some worth in adding um, to the platform, it might be, you know, and and by you putting forward that pledge, it gets added to the platform. It may mean that you can then provide when you have clients that might require that, uh, it's already available. So you're saving time, like in terms of the client's best interest, it may be in the client's best interest, but mm. you have to have a very good reason as to why you were um, pledging that support um, yeah, that's the yeah, way I see it. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm. Yeah. Um, look, that's great. So uh, w- with that, um, you know, I really appreciate your time, um, Dr Michelle Cull and uh, Richard Jackson. Thanks thanks very much for participating. Thanks Thank for the opportunity, much. Matthew. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ethics and Professionalism podcast. A quick reminder that you can earn CPD points by visiting our website. If you'd like to submit a scenario, please send me an email for a chance to have it featured on an upcoming episode. In the meantime, please keep an eye on our channels to stay updated on future episodes.